chapter 60. Arise, shine, your light has dawned. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Although darkness covers the earth and a thick mist the peoples, upon you the Lord will shine, over you his glory shall be visible. Now a minute ago we saw that the wicked were left in darkness, in gross darkness, without a glimmer of hope. They were walking mid-gloom, groping like the blind along the wall or the borders. And we also saw in chapter 58 that those who give of their own to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, to them the light will dawn amid darkness and their twilight will become as the noonday. He's talking about a very specific group of people, not just anybody. It's those who share their food with the hungry, who bring home the wretchedly poor, and so forth. To them, their light will break through like the dawn, and their healing speedily appear in chapter 58 again, verse 8. So we can't just say, apply this across the board to everybody. We have to say, this is a very specific group of people to whom this happens. Those who live up to that kind of standard, to the Lord's standard of righteousness. Arise, shine, your light has dawned. It's the dawning of the millennium, the new millennium of peace. It's likened to a new dawn in the book of Isaiah. And the light here is parallel with the glory of the Lord. But the light is also the Lord's servant. We saw that in chapter 42 and 49, which we just quoted, that the servant is appointed as a light to the nations, or a light to the peoples. We also see it in chapter 9, where he's called the light, that lights up the darkness of the righteous people. And we also saw in chapter 52 that Zion rises from the dust to sit upon her throne. So when it says, Arise, shine, your light is done, it has to do with Zion. It's a word link. That specific group of people, that caliber of people. To them the millennium of peace will dawn. Not so to the wicked. They will go into chaos or into darkness, which is a chaos motif. The light dawning is parallel with the glory of the Lord rising upon them. The glory of the Lord symbolizes his presence. It is the cloudy pillar that rests upon the congregations of Zion in chapter 4 and protects them from the storm, the storm being the day of judgment, the day of destruction of the wicked. The one group is in a safe place, protected there under the cloud of glory. And that is the whole effect of the servant's mission. His purpose is to call people to repentance, to raise them up to a higher spiritual level, and then to bring them out in an exodus from among the wicked, in that separation we just talked about, to places that are safe or protected, like the Israelites were protected under the cloud of glory from the Egyptians, so that the Egyptians could not harm them, or like the Israelites were protected in the Sinai wilderness from the hot sun and from other elements of destruction. The glory of the Lord rising upon them means that they come under God's protection, or divine protection, under His divine intervention to protect them, because the Lord himself brings the cloud of glory down. The servant can't do that. But the servant can prepare the way so that God may come and protect them in that way. He's the forerunner of God's coming. He's the Moses that prepares the minds and hearts of the people to respond appropriately to the Lord so that the Lord can come and save them. But the glory of the Lord rising upon them is also a permanent thing, not just a temporary thing during the destruction. What happened when the temple was built in the promised land anciently? The cloud of glory came and rested upon the temple, signifying the Lord's presence. The Lord's presence was with the people in the Sinai wanderings. The cloud of glory rested upon the tabernacle there, and Moses went into the Holy of Holies and spoke with the Lord face to face. So can the high priest once the temple is built. It implies a permanent coming of the Lord as well to his holy house. And we'll see that 
just a little later where it's not talking about the house of the Lord. Chapter 66, talking about the house of the Lord, the temple that will be built. But in the meantime, the glory of the Lord comes upon those people who respond to the servant's mission, to the light that the Lord sends to them. The light is also the light of truth, and the precepts of God, or the terms of the covenant, are also called a light in the book of Isaiah. We covered that. The light is a twofold thing. It is both the servant and also the light of truth, or the precepts of the Lord in the terms of his covenant. The one goes into the light and grows in the light and has all the benefits of the light and all the consequences of responding appropriately, the blessings of the covenant, and the other, the curses. Though darkness covers the earth and a thick mist the peoples. That's the lot of the wicked who don't respond to the light. The darkness does not receive the light or doesn't comprehend the light. And so we have this horrendous dichotomy of two coexisting groups of people, one responding to the light who received into the light and the others who are left in darkness or who reject the light and go into greater darkness. One signifying a new creation, whose light is a creative force, and the other in a situation of chaos and going into destruction because that is a chaos motif. They go back to their elemental state. The thick mist is another chaos motif. Dust, chaff, darkness, ashes, fog, all of those are chaos motifs, clouds, signifying being reduced to an elemental state. They cease to exist eventually. The, the wicked become as dust under the feet of righteousness, the prophet Malachi says. Although darkness covers the earth and a thick mist the peoples upon you, the Lord will shine over you. His glory shall be visible. But we have there a chiasm. Chapter 60, verse 1, talks about the light rising upon them, the glory of the Lord. In the middle of it is the darkness covering the earth and the thickness of the peoples, and then goes back to the Lord shining, and over them his glory being visible. That's an ABA chiasm. That's going to be a very interesting time when most of the world is going to be in total darkness, spiritually and maybe also physically, because of the polluting clouds that Isaiah talks about. At the end of chapter 9, the wicked are left in darkness, where there is gnashing of teeth, very similar to the parable of the uh, wise and foolish virgins. In chapter 8, verse 22 says, They will look to the land, but there shall be a depressing scene of anguish and gloom, unless they are banished into outer darkness. Verse 3. This is mostly a bright chapter. Unlike chapter 59, is mostly about the wicked. Chapter 58 was, again, mostly about the righteous. So he's going back and forth here, between what happens to the righteous and what happens to the wicked. Showing again the dichotomy, the division, the separation of the two. One exemplifies extreme wickedness and the other extreme righteousness and the consequences of each. But it's all the same people. It's all the covenant people of God. They go two ways. One goes one way, the other goes the other way. Verse 3, Nations will come to your light, their rulers to the brightness of your dawn. Now the nations and rulers have been mentioned before. We've seen, like in chapter 2 and chapter 66, it's talking about remnants of Israel who are scattered among the nations coming home. And that's what it says in the next verse. Lift up your eyes and look about you. They have all assembled to come to you. Your sons shall arrive from afar. Your daughters shall return to your side. They're your own kind. They're members of the covenant people. Those who are out there are going to come back. When the glory of the Lord rests upon his people in a particular place as it did on the temple in Jerusalem anciently, that will attract people that will be the time of the return of Israel from exile. 
How do they come? They come in an exodus to a center place. When? At the dawning of the millennium. Nations will come to your light, their rulers to the brightness of your dawn. The light is also the servant, so he has something to do with it. He's the one who is the ensign that rallies the Lord's people to repent and to return. The Lord's people called Zion, who repent of transgression, to return to the place Zion. So we can assume that this is the place Zion, or Jerusalem, a place where the Lord's servant will be, or will have something to do with. Nations and rulers, or kings. Kings and queens of the Gentiles minister to people of the house of Israel. Yet many of Israel mingled with the Gentiles, or the Gentiles have mingled with Israel, so that in the end, all those who become the covenant people may be said to be of Israel, whether they come of the ethnic lineages of Israel or the mingled lineages, they're all part of one body of people. Lift up your eyes and look about you. Verse 4, they've all assembled to come to you. All of them, all those who repented have come. Not one is left behind. From where? Well, from everywhere. It's like we saw a moment ago. To the isles he will render retribution. It's a universal judgment, so it is a universal exodus or universal salvation. Very much like Jeremiah talks about, you will no more say the Lord God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, but the Lord God who brought the Israelites from the four corners of the earth, from everywhere. Sons and daughters also are technical terms, implying vassalship to the Lord, people who have covenanted with him, become his servants and sons. These are people who are responding appropriately. These are the opposite of the rebellious sons we saw in chapter 1. These are sons who are loyal and faithful and daughters. Verse 5, when you see it, your face will light up, your heart will swell with awe, the multitude of the sea shall resort to you, a host of nations shall enter you. Here we have the concept of those at home and those abroad. Those at home welcome those abroad into their midst, and they receive them back. It's like the prodigal son coming home, or it's like the structure of Isaiah that he uses, of trouble at home, exile abroad, and happy homecoming. There's a happy homecoming here for those who have gone through experiences of life and renew their allegiance to God and they're appointed to a high position in their homeland once they return. There are those at home who welcome them back. In this case, it's likened to a woman, Zion, who welcomes back her children, her sons and daughters who have been away. The nation's coming and her heart's swelling with awe and her face lighting up. There are terms here that link this scenario to chapter 2, where a nation's and peoples come up to Zion to be instructed in the law of the covenant. The uh, time frame given in chapter 2 there is the last days. In the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the head of the nations or the head of the mountains. And nations and people return there where they come from all over to Zion. There are word links there, like the word nations and word flowing to Zion. In Hebrew, the heart swelling with awe says flowing with awe. It's a word link to chapter 2. The multitude of the sea shall resort to you, a host of nations shall enter you. The sea is associated in the book of Isaiah with the king of Assyria. Anciently, the king of Assyria took captive the ten tribes and they returned from the land of Assyria. So this implies a return from the land of Assyria of the ten tribes who were taken captive anciently. In modern terms, there is a modern king of Assyria of which the ancient king of Assyria was a type. So it means that the ten tribes, on their return, are released from captivity to him. They are part of the Exodus home. A host of nations shall enter you. Well, all these, of course, are the nations of Israel, not just one nation. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were promised in Joseph that their offspring would become a multitude of nations. Well, here they are. Verse 6, A myriad of camels will cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All from Sheba will come, bringing gold and frankincense and heralding the praises of the Lord. All Kedah's flocks will gather to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They shall be accepted as offerings on my altar, and thus I will make glorious my house of glory. There you have the house spoken of, the temple. The house of glory, because the glory of the Lord will be resting upon it once they come home. Where does the glory of the Lord go that has been protecting these congregations of Israel that come in the Exodus? The glory of the Lord doesn't just go back up into the air. It stays and rests upon the temple. And these camels and dromedaries could be camels and dromedaries again, literally, or they could be vehicles of some kind, chariots. The gold and frankincense implies that these are elect people that are being gathered. Remember the precious metals symbolizing the elect? The semi-precious and the common metals and stones symbolizing the other two categories of people that Isaiah talks about? This implies the gathering of the elect, the righteous people of God. The gathering of these flocks, the flocks and the rams that are mentioned here, implies covenant people of the Lord. Yes, of course, they could be literal flocks and rams and so forth, but in the book of Isaiah, animals represent peoples too. The camels and dromedaries are not kosher animals, but the rams and flocks are. So we have both Israelite and Gentile here coming back, symbolizing the gathering of Israel. Among the gathering of literal Israel or ethnic Israel, there are also proselytes or those from among the Gentiles who are part of that gathering. And we've seen that before. In chapter 14, for example, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and once again choose Israel. He will settle them in their own land and proselytes will adhere to them and join the house of Jacob. And we've had chapter 56, where the foreigners and eunuchs are given the highest covenantal blessings because of their allegiance to the God of Israel. The kings and queens of the Gentiles, or the mingled lineages of Israel, are also very much part of this scenario. When it says, They shall be accepted as offerings on my altar, the people themselves are the offerings. And we discussed that in chapter 1, where the animals are coming to the temple for sacrifice in an ancient context, but as a metaphor for people, the people themselves are the offerings. And we see that in this case. We see it also in chapter 66. We see something similar where the coming in horses and chariots and wagons and mules and dromedaries, just as the Israelites brought offerings and pure vessels to the house of the Lord, they are bringing back of all their brethren from throughout the nations to Jerusalem. My holy mountain, in chapter 66, verse 20, is like bringing offerings to the Lord, bringing the Israelites back to the temple. It's all very much allegorical, besides whatever literal meaning it may have. It's talking about people, basically, and nations and rulers in verse 3, sons and daughters in verse 4. And then it goes into that allegorical imagery of the animals, and then back to the people again, because it's been talking about people all along. Verse 8, Who are these aloft like clouds, flying as doves to their portals? From the isles they are gathering to me, the ships of Tarshish and the lead, to bring back your children from afar, and with them their silver and gold, to the Lord Omnipotent your God, to the Holy One of Israel, who has made you illustrious. Verses 8 and 9. Some of them are not just walking, but they're also flying. And we discussed that camels and dromedaries may refer to various kinds of vehicles perhaps today. And maybe these others refer to vehicles also, vehicles that fly. Or it may refer to some kind of spiritual transportation, like 
the Spirit of the Lord taking Philip in the New Testament from place to place. That's also a possibility. It may also be talking about more than one event. We've seen, for example, Operation Magic Carpet, in which Ethiopian Jews and Oriental Jews were flown back to Israel, to their homeland, in airplanes. It was a huge airlift of people, and they were established in Israel. In Isaiah's scenario, those people that are in Israel right now would be some of those at home who would be welcoming those who come from abroad in this latter-day exodus that hasn't happened yet. The place is being prepared there for them to return home. There will be those at home ready to receive them when this mass exodus takes place that Isaiah is talking about here. Let's talk about the ships also. So we have all kinds of transportation by land, by sea, and by air. To bring back your children from afar within their silver and gold. Again, the precious metals symbolizing the elect category of God's people, besides the actual literal silver and gold that they bring. They'll be bringing their wealth with them. To the Lord Omnipotent, your God, that is your covenant God, to the Holy One of Israel, who has made you illustrious. The Holy One of Israel is the exemplar of his people. And these have become holy. These ones were spared the destruction because they were valiant and they were holy as we've discussed before. And as a result, they've become illustrious. The Lord has made them illustrious. The cross-reference there is chapter 42, verse 21, which talks about the people becoming illustrious. It says, It is the will of the Lord that because of his righteousness they magnify the law and become illustrious. So if these people have become illustrious, then it is because they have magnified the law, which is the law of the covenant, and have begun to experience all the blessings of the covenant. And the Lord exalts his covenant people, all those who covenant with him by sacrifice. Verse 10, Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their rulers will minister to you, or their kings will minister to you. So we're back in the homeland. They've been gathering and now they're inheriting the promised land and given lands of inheritance, as we've seen before in chapter 49, for example, where the servant gives the people lands of inheritance. Their places are being rebuilt the ancient land is being rebuilt. And the rulers or kings of the Gentiles, the foreigners, will minister to them and will assist them in this case. Though I struck you in anger, I will gladly show you mercy. Now these people have not always been righteous. In other words, they are people who were subject to the Lord's wrath and anger for having transgressed, for having been a wicked people at some point. Mercy also implies forgiveness, forgiveness of their sins. The law of mercy comes into operation when the people repent. But without repentance, they are still under the law of justice, as the wicked are, who go to destruction. So here we have a cycle alluded to, of going from wickedness to punishment, being struck in anger, and then being forgiven, and the Lord being merciful to them, so much that they are brought back to a situation of covenant blessing. They come back from exile and are given lands of inheritance. That's merciful. It defines God's mercy, how merciful he is. Anger is also a pseudonym describing the king of Assyria. He personifies God's anger, so they were struck in anger. Or in other words, the king of Assyria was given power over them at some point. Verse 11, Your gates shall always remain open. They shall not be shut day or night. Meaning that there will be no more need to defend against the king of Assyria or against the enemy because they'll be gone. It means the king of Assyria will do his work, will destroy the wicked, the wicked destroying the wicked, and then he will be made an end of, as we saw in chapter 14, 
he himself will be destroyed. Everything that he does to others is done to him. We've discussed that principle. The fact that the gates are open means that he's gone. There's no more danger from him. He comes to an end. Also, the gates being open implies that all will be welcome constantly to come. There is a tradition of Abraham, who was a nomad, having four doors to his tent. And he always had them open, one facing north, one east, south, and west. So that any stranger who needed help or who needed a cup of water or a meal could come from any direction to Abraham's tent and receive hospitality. And that's what Abraham was doing when he sent Eliezer to look in that time of the Sharav, or the hot desert wind that prevails for several days in Israel. It's so oppressive. It sent Eliezer, his servant, to look for anybody out there who might be wandering in the desert. The visibility is very limited during those times of those storms. And he goes out and finds nobody, and, and Abraham goes out himself and looks, just so that if there's anybody out there, anybody might be stranded in that storm. And then the angels of the Lord come to Abraham, and he can receive them. Your gates shall always remain open, they shall not be shut day or night, that a host of nations may be brought to you, and their rulers or kings escorted in. Of course, these are Israelites returning from among the Gentiles. They may have been actually mingled lineages of Israel, returning from among the Gentiles. And they come in that exodus that Isaiah talks about, in a great exodus of all peoples of Israel that respond to the servant's mission and that come to escape destruction. Verse 12, And the nation or kingdom that will not serve you shall perish, such nations shall be utterly ruined. So once they are established in the land, and the peoples of Israel have gathered, there will also be ongoing pilgrimages to Sinai or to the center place, from whatever nation or kingdom is out there in the world, at least representatives from them, very much along the pattern of empire anciently, when the suzerain king put on a feast for all his vassal kings, and they would come once or twice a year to pay tribute to the emperor king, to the suzerain king, and renew their allegiance to him. That situation will prevail when the Lord comes and dwells among his people and rules there, then his vassal kings or his vassals will come from all over the world to pay tribute. But if there should be any nation out there that does not come or send representatives and does not serve God under the terms of the covenant, in this case serve his people or those who are his people too, or bring tribute monies, gold and silver or whatever it may be, those nations will be utterly ruined. They will come under a covenant curse for having broken the covenant. So that by the end of the millennium, those nations will have perished or have been ruined and will no longer be. Verse 13, the splendor of Lebanon shall become yours, cypresses, pines, and fir trees together to beautify the site of my sanctuary, to make glorious the place of my feet. There is again that idea of the temple that we saw in verse 7. There shall be offerings on my altar. It doesn't indicate there any animal sacrifice, literal, if we read this metaphorically. If these people returning, these flocks and rams represent people in a metaphorical sense, then the people themselves are the offering. If they are taken literally as flocks and rams, then there would be a blood sacrifice there for a time at least. But it's mainly talking about people. That's what it is here. People come here. The place turns into paradise, as we saw earlier. The desert blossoms and becomes paradisical. And that which was beautiful, the lush places become a wilderness. We've seen that idea. 
but let's assume that here, that which has been desert now becomes beautiful again, or that which was desolate becomes beautiful again. Eventually that beauty, or that lush environment, spreads over all the earth. In uh, chapter 51, verse 3, the Lord is comforting Zion, bringing solace through all her ruins. He's making her wilderness like Eden, her desert as the garden of the Lord. But as Zion spreads abroad, we saw that in chapter 54, Zion expands the site of her tent and the canopies of her dwellings, spreads abroad to the right, to the left, dispossesses the nations, spreads abroad to all the earth. All her land, in that case, will be beautified and will become paradisical. The whole earth will become so as Zion spreads. The splendor of Lebanon shall be yours. Remember the cedars of Lebanon were hewn down by the king of Assyria and the oaks of Bashan. That was the lot of the wicked. Again, we see the reversal of circumstances between the righteous and the wicked here as the splendor of Lebanon becomes that of those who were oppressed. Cypresses, pines, and firs together. We also saw that idea on Israel's return in chapter 41, where on Israel's return it says, I will open up streams in barren hill country, springs in the midst of the plains. I will turn the desert into lakes, parched lands into fountains of water. I will bring cedars and acacias, myrtles and oleasters in the wilderness. I will place cypresses, elms, and box trees in the steppes. Chapter 41, verse 17 and 18 and 19. As the people return home, accompanied by the Lord's cloud of glory, wherever the Lord's presence is, that place blossoms into a paradisical state. Verse 14, The sons of those who tormented you will come bowing before you. All who reviled you will prostrate themselves at your feet. They will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. This is the place where the Lord dwells, where the Holy One of Israel has his temple. The sons of those who tormented you coming bowing before you, the bowing implies conversion, as we've seen before. It implies also that there will be different categories of people, the one on a higher spiritual level than the others, the one serving the other. We've seen that in chapter 14, verse 2. The nations will take them and bring them to their own place. The house of Israel will possess them as men servants and maid servants in the land of the Lord. They will take captive their captors and rule over their oppressors. In this case, we see the sons of the oppressors. The actual oppressors are all destroyed, but in this case, some of them survive. Some of the offspring or the descendants of the oppressors survive. That implies that they're not themselves oppressors. It also implies conversion, like I said. They will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. In the book of Isaiah, there are two cities, the wicked city that goes into the dust and the righteous city that is preserved, as we have seen, which city is Zion. The Holy One of Israel is mentioned there because these are the ones who emulate that attribute of holiness of God. Although you have been forsaken and abhorred, with none passing through your land, yet I will make you an everlasting pride, the joy of generation after generation. These people who experienced this exaltation in this case were themselves once humiliated. They had gone through humiliation. These people who were experiencing this salvation had once gone through tremendous suffering. This is a reversal of their circumstances. Also, the Lord's servant had been abhorred once. Remember? Chapter 51, I think it was. It says the Lord's servant was abhorred by his people, and then rulers worshipped before him. Chapter 49, verse 7. To him who is despised as a person who is abhorred by his nation, a servant, a mere servant to those in authority, rulers shall rise up when they see you, heads of state shall prostrate themselves, because the Lord keeps faith with you, because the Holy One of Israel has chosen you. Speaking of the Lord's servant there, 
what happens to the Lord's servant happens to the Lord's people. As the Lord reverses his circumstances, he turns around and does the same for his people. They were forsaken and abhorred, and now they are worshipped. People prostrate themselves at their feet. They become an everlasting pride, the joy of generation after generation. You will suck the milk of the nations, verse 16, suckling at the breasts of rulers or kings. Then shall you know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, that your Redeemer is the valiant one of Jacob. There we have the second attribute of the Lord that's very prominent in Isaiah, that is valor, the Holy One of Israel and the valiant one of Israel or Jacob, who is the Lord himself. Notice all these titles here, that I, the Lord, the Savior, the Redeemer, the valiant one of Jacob, the Holy One of Israel. Because all of these things have bearing here. These people experience salvation. He's a Savior to them because they emulated his attributes of holiness and valor themselves. They proved loyal under all conditions to the Lord. They are the elect. They are the gold and silver. And also the fact that he talks that way, then shall you know. The word to know is a covenant term. They know him. They know who he is. In other words, they see him face to face. They don't just read about him in books, or they don't just see the cloud. They actually see him. And shall you know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, that your Redeemer is the valiant one of Jacob. Verse 17, In place of copper I will bring gold, in place of iron silver, in place of wood I will bring copper, in place of stones iron. And here we see that all of society upgrades a level. There will be no more stones. Stones is a common variety. It goes from common to semi-precious in place of stones, iron. It goes from wood to copper. Copper is semi-precious. Wood is common. In place of iron, silver, it goes from semi-precious to precious. Iron is semi-precious. Silver is precious. Copper is semi-precious. In place of copper, I will bring gold. It's precious. So, that which is now semi-precious becomes precious. That which is now common becomes semi-precious. That which is common is left behind. There will be no more common. Because the whole earth becomes a paradisical earth. In chapter 62, verse 10, it says, Excavate, pave a highway cleared of stones, in preparation for the coming of the Lord there. There will be no more stones left, only semi-precious stones or metals. This is like the three degrees of glory that Paul alludes to. One glory likened to the sun, one like to the moon, and one like to the stars. Here we're eliminating the lowest category from the earth. No longer going to be there. It's not going to be an earth like we know it today. It's going to be a paradisical glory like the Garden of Eden, a new Garden of Eden. But it also alludes to the idea that there could be an upgrade again someday. At the end of the millennium, when a new series of events happen, maybe the intermediate category, the glory like to the moon, as Paul calls it, will disappear, and only the sun, or the highest category, symbolized by the uh, gold and silver, will remain In this time period, at the dawning of the millennium, when the wicked are destroyed, only the highest and the intermediate categories remain. The wicked belong to this lower category. They disappear. I will make peace your rulers and righteousness your oppressors. It's a little bit satirical because there will be no more oppressors. The oppressors will be gone. It also implies that because of the parallelism of rulers and oppressions that the rulers were oppressors before, and such rulers will no longer be. Peace will be your rulers. Peace is synonymous with salvation in the book of Isaiah. Peace is for the righteous, no peace for the wicked, remember. And righteousness will rule. Righteousness as a condition, as a virtue, as an attribute. 
but also the person righteousness will remain. And we've seen before that righteousness and salvation remain all the way through here. The servant, once he has prepared the people for the coming of the Lord and the Lord comes, the servant doesn't just go away, he also stays. In the book of um, Zechariah, it says, They too shall sit on one throne, the Lord and his servant. The Lord's servant is kind of a deputy for the Lord. Kind of like in Egypt you had Pharaoh who was king of all the land, and yet Joseph was ruling under him. That's a type. This will be the long-awaited peace, the millennial peace, that all the prophets of the Lord have looked forward to. Verse 18, Tyranny shall no more be heard of in your land, nor dispossession or disaster within your borders. You will regard salvation as your walls and homage as your gates. The tyranny that was there before, which preceded this event, or preceded the coming of the Lord, will be gone. No more oppression or tyranny. Because of the oppression, because of the tyranny, there was dispossession. People were being dispossessed because of the unjust, wicked business dealings that we talked about in chapter 59. Extortion, illicit transactions led to that dispossession, like uh, repossession by the bank, foreclosures, things like that. That will be gone. There'll be no more disasters, whether individual disasters or national disasters. When one country takes over another, they dispossess the people of their rights. All of that will no longer exist. Salvation as walls. That idea appears also in chapter 26, verses 1 and 2, which I cross-reference there, where it says, Our city is strong. Salvation he has set up as walls and barricades. Because the Lord himself is salvation. So when he's present in the city, you don't need walls. Besides, there'll be no more dangers from enemies, so you don't need walls anyway. It implies that the Lord is there amidst his people in their saved condition. He comes to save them through the instrumentality of the servant and also the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria destroys their enemies, the oppressors. So they're gone. But then the king of Assyria is himself destroyed. So he's gone. The Lord does that. He destroys the king of Assyria through his servant. So the servant remains. People remain in their saved condition, and the Lord himself comes to his people in that condition and dwells among them. as there in their city, the city of the Lord. Verse 19, No longer shall the sun be your light by day, nor the brightness of the moon your illumination at night. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God your radiant glory. And here we see contrast between the Lord and his servant. Both are called the light. In chapter 42 and 49, the servant is appointed as a light, as we saw. But he leads to the greater light. He's the lesser light, and the Lord is the greater light. He prepares the way, like the sun beginning to dawn, but not yet popping over the horizon. Now the Lord has come. So it's like the sun in its full glory, and the servant gives way to the Lord. He was his forerunner. He was a preparer of the way, like John the Baptist was before his first coming. It also means that the sun that we have light from today, pertaining to this particular glory that we have of this earth, will no longer be necessary, will no longer be there. It will be in a higher light. We see that also just a little later on, where the light increases sevenfold. The light will be greater at that time than it is now. The Lord's very presence with his people will be the light that they experience. 
Your sun shall set no more, nor your moon wane. To you the Lord shall be an endless light when your days of mourning are fulfilled. Again, reminding us of the reversal of the circumstances. The mourning is a word link to chapter 61, because the Lord's servant there comforts all who mourn. He empowers them and endows them. In verse 2, chapter 61, verse 2. Also, in other places, it talks about those who have mourned, like in chapter 35, verse 10, the ransom of the Lord shall return. They shall come singing to Zion, their heads crowned with everlasting joy. They shall have one joy and gladness when sorrow and sighing flee away. They go through a period of mourning or sorrow and sighing because of their oppression by the wicked at first to prove them. And when they remain loyal to the Lord through that kind of adversity, then he turns things around for them. He reverses their circumstances. Also, it implies that there's no day and night as we know it today. Your sun shall set no more. It doesn't go down and it's dark. That pertains to this particular level of existence that we have today. That time will enter a whole new sphere of things. It will be a whole new reality when the Lord dwells among his people. Your entire people shall be righteous, verse 21, because the wicked cannot dwell there in his presence or among the righteous. They shall inherit the earth forever. Not just one land, but the whole earth. They are the branch I have planted, the work of my hands in which I am glorified. The branch is a metaphor, a righteous branch of the tree, implying that there are other branches that are not righteous, that were cut off. They don't survive, or they're dead, dead branches. And we saw that idea at the end of chapter 10, where the king of Assyria hews down the trees, the high in stature shall be hewn down, the lofty ones level, the dense forest shall be battered down with the force of iron, and Lebanon falls spectacularly. And then it mentions a branch in chapter 11, verse 1, the branch that bears good fruit. That's what these people have done. They're a branch that bears good fruit. It's a word link to that other part of Isaiah that mentions the branch. So is the work of my hands, which is parallel with the branch. The work of my hands is a term describing the ten tribes returning from exile at the end of chapter 19. It implies that these people include the ten tribes that have returned. He has planted them, and them he is glorified because they honor him. They magnify God in the earth by keeping covenant with him, and proving loyal to him through all circumstances. Here we have, again, the inheritance now extends to the whole earth. They've come from exile, the land has blossomed when they settle there. Their whole existence is upgraded. The Lord dwells among them. The situation extends to the whole earth. Called the millennial era or the great millennium of peace. Verse 22, The least of them shall become a clan, the youngest a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. It implies that there will be a situation that will prevail in which it won't seem likely that such things could happen. But then when the Lord comes to intervene and acts, it will all happen very quickly. And of course, that kind of thing has been prophesied elsewhere. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, those days will be shortened, lest no flesh survive. 